Welcome to part two of the London Walks Halloween podcast. In a few minutes, I'll be discussing Frankenstein, but here's Andy, first and foremost, to discuss the business of exorcism. Hallowed time is getting towards Halloween, the festival of the dead. There's a, a chill in the air, supernatural chill, let's call it. And I talked a little bit about the, the Exorcist before. Well, it was perhaps seems not similar to the Exorcist. That's just a ghost in the background. Uh, that captured Shakespeare's imagination over 400 years ago. A declaration of egregious popish impostures. Believe me, the full title is much, much longer. But it was written by Samuel Halsnet, Doctor of Divinity and Chaplain to the Bishops of London. Um, it's an account of the exorcism of six supposedly fraudulent demoniacs by twelve Catholic priests and a, a very stern kind of fire and brimstone Jesuit priest called William Weston. The exorcisms were apparently witnessed by hundreds of people in a kind of theatre of cruelty and performances, I say in inverted commas, that took place over several months at Denham House in Buckinghamshire, the home of Sir George Peckham in the late 1580s. Just, but there is no doubt they took place, but whether they were fraudulent, whether the demoniacs faked their possession or actually believed they were possessed is the subject of great debate. And that's a theme that Shakespeare is more than keen to explore in some of his greatest plays, such as Hamlet and, and King Lee. More things in heaven and earth are richer than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Come, here, as before, never so help in mercy, how strange or odd soever I bear myself. And I perchance hereafter shall think meet to put an antique disposition on. But you which such time see me never shall, with arms encumbered thus, or this head shake, or by pronouncing of some doubtful phrases, well, will we know, or we couldn't if we would, or the dean if they might, or if we list to speak, or other such ambiguous giving out to know that you know aught of me, this not to do. So grace and mercy it is most needs help you swear. It was said the atmosphere at Denham House is said to be feverish, hysterical. The demoniacs included three men and three women. Amongst them a woman called Anne Smith and the sisters Sarah and Frances Williamson. They all were said to have suffered fits and convulsions. They'd made prophecies and revelations. They'd, um, their eyes would roll. They would, um, uh, they would vomit. Uh, they'd said to cast pins out of their eyes. Over several months, and apparently witnessed by hundreds of spectators, with much violent shrieking, banging of walls and ceilings, flinging of holy water and carving the names of demons on the walls, the demoniacs suffered what can only be described as torture. The possessed men and women were stuck with pins while they convulsed, and their eyes rolling and mouths foaming. Chafing dishes of brimstone and feathers were burnt under their noses, and they were forced to inhale burning sulphur. Now, given that kind of treatment, it's difficult to believe they were feigning anything. They completely lost their senses. Sarah Williams, only in her mid-teens, was frequently bound to a chair. So there's echoes of Gloucester in King Lear, who is bound to a chair while his eyes are gouged out. For the 
answer that. I am tied to the stake. I must stand there. Wherefore? I take Dover! I would not see thy cruel nails pluck out his dear old eyes. Upon these eyes of thine, I'll set my foot. given potions, one of which consisted of rue, oil, wine and various other substances. At one time it was said she was so extremely afflicted with the said drinks and smoke that her senses went from her and she remained in a swoon. At her recovery she remembers that the priest said that the devil did then go down in the lower parts of her body. Also she remembers well that at one time they thrust into her mouth a relic, being a piece of Campion's bones, which they did by force, she herself loathing the same. Weston, who owned various relics, including that of Edwin Campion, a Jesuit priest martyred at Tyburn in 1581, said it did wonderfully burn the devil. The priests also told them they had to be baptised anew to be rid of the devils, this time with salt in the mouth, saliva on the eyes and oil on the lips. Pins were thrust into Francis William's shoulders and legs, and she was pinched until she was bruised all over seemingly to stab, trap and pinch the devils that were supposed to crawl beneath her skin. A young Catholic gentleman testified that you could, you could actually see the devils gliding and moving under her skin. There were immense numbers of them, and they looked like fishes, swimming here, there and everywhere. Uh, Flibbergibbet, Smolken, Obiduct, Hobbidance, Mahu, Modo, Fratero, Swithold. This was clearly... A terrific source for Shakespeare, who raids the names of these demons verbatim for the, the devils that afflict Edgar as poor Tom in King Lear. Here comes the walking fire! What are you? Oh, this is the foul fiend Flippity Gibbet. He begins at curfew and walks till the first cock. He gives the web and the pin squints the eye and makes the hair lip mildews the white wheat and hurts the poor creatures of the earth. A swithin footed thrice the world unmet the nightmare and her ninefold bitter remite and her troth light and a right thee, witcher, right thee. How fares your grace? <laughs> What's he? Who's there? The ambiguity of whether these demoniacs were actually possessed or feigning or both or were and then weren't is also reflected in the characterization of Edgar as poor Tom. Is he too feigning madness or is he genuinely possessed by the devil? Finally on August the 4th Western Battle arrested by order of Sir Francis Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth's spymaster, uh, who had been carefully watching Catholic activities including the Denham House exorcisms. The house was raided and most of the occupants were arrested. Other priests were jailed but no incriminating evidence against Weston could be found but nonetheless he was imprisoned in Wisbeck Castle for ten years in the Tower before finally being exiled during the reign of James I where he lived in Spain and later wrote his autobiography, much of it relating to the Denham House exorcisms. Many people have questioned Hasnett's account. A modern Jesuit, he describes Samuel Hasnett's account as worthless as historical evidence, used only to discredit the priests who were taking part, adding that the account contains such charges of gross immorality against Western and the priests involved that it must be rejected as pure Protestant propaganda. However, Hasnett was also critical of Protestants who carried out similar exorcisms. The interesting thing for me is that the account is written with such verve, the lively imagery and quirky vocabulary so powerful that Shakespeare was clearly impressed and used as a vital source 
not only for the poor Tom scenes in Lear, but also typical of the famous storm scenes, all shaking, thunder, cracking, blowing, sulphurous and thought, executing fires. In fact, throughout the play, Shakespeare uses Hardnet as this wonderful source to explore the relationship between madness, melancholy and possession that is such a major theme, not just in Lear, but many other of his plays. Hamlet, for example. It's fascinating, weird, supernatural, spooky. Blow, wings, and crack your cheeks! Rage, blow! You veterans and hurricanes, spout and you have drenched our steeples round the cocks. You surface and thought-excluding fires more curious to outcleaving thunderbolts. The first Hollywood Frankenstein was made in 1931 by director James Whale and starred London's very own Boris Karloff. William Henry Pratt was born in Camberwell, South London, in 1887. You can find a plaque in Forest Hill Road marking the place of his birth. He was raised in Enfield, now part of North London, and studied at King's College, with a view to entering diplomatic service, following in the footsteps of his father. In 1909, however, without graduating, he packed it all in and drifted west, picking up itinerant jobs as a farm worker and a logger in Canada before answering the call of the stage. Karloff's name change is the subject of much conjecture. The actor himself said that he simply thought the name Boris to be foreign and exotic sounding while stating vaguely that Karloff was an old family name from his Slavic ancestry. This last claim is dismissed by his daughter. There is another theory that he changed his name to avoid embarrassing his brothers, all eminent members of the British Foreign Service. It is said that Karloff was worried about bringing shame to his family with his showbiz antics. He needn't have worried. When he finally returned to England in 1933 to make the movie The Ghoul, his brothers excitedly posed for publicity pictures with their now famous sibling. A happy ending. No such happy ending is found for Frankenstein's monster. Karloff played the role back in 1931 for Universal Studios, working with the English director, James Whale. The role was an arduous one. With a bad back acquired during his years as an itinerant labourer, plus the four-inch platform shoes, each of which weighed £11, that's five standard bags of sugar from the supermarket, well, they were tough to work with. And several hours a day, were spent in the makeup chair in the company of legendary artist Jack Pierce, mentioned in the last episode, who created the famed Frankenstein's monster look. A look that was immediately so successful that Universal Studios took copyright and ownership of the design. Whale's film is a talkie, but is silent in terms of score. There's no music and this adds to the overall unsettling effect. 
It's pretty pacey too. Within ten minutes we've had an execution, a dead body snatched, and a perfectly good brain smashed in a jar and swapped for a damaged one. Colin Clive plays the bad doctor, bent on defying nature and aligning himself with God. It is a gloriously hysterical performance, bug-eyed and driven, half an inch short of foaming at the mouth. Perfect. Now, he roars, I know what it's like to be God. Powerful stuff for 1931. In another London connection, Clive and the director, James Whale, had first worked together on Journey's End at the Savoy Theatre in 1929, in which Clive took over the role of Stanhope from a young Laurence Olivier. Dwight Fry plays his assistant Fritz as the sort of boy who pulls the wings off flies for fun. A memorable performance in a movie simply packed with them. The scene where the switch is thrown and the lightning is harnessed and the creature comes to life remains the benchmark by which all subsequent performances are judged. Rather like Dame Edith Evans with her handbag in The Importance of Being Earnest, the words, it's alive, are eagerly anticipated by horror movie aficionados in every subsequent reimagining. In many ways, Karloff is equally as hard to top in the role of the creature. The note he strikes most clearly rings like a bell and resonates through every version ever since. Melancholy. Physically, he makes a surprisingly fine-featured creature. The cheekbones jut and taper away to the fine chin and he has a long, almost elegant neck. These natural attributes only serve to heighten Piercy's brutally bulbous cranium and the shadows cast by that atavistic, overhanging brow. But Karloff's never buried by the makeup. There's a performance there, a most theatrical one. And if this is not too much of a contradiction given the horror context, it's a lovely performance, tender in places. Moving. The original sets for the movie were later used in Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. As I record, there's a musical version going on in London's West End. The movie, from 1974, stars Gene Wilder as the Doctor, with East Ender and British comedy legend Marty Feldman as Igor. When you watch the original and the Brooks versions back-to-back, it's surprising to see how faithful the parody is to the original. Okay, the Karloff version doesn't teem with clod-hopping Big Willie gags, and there's no song and dance number in the original. 
But the scene where Wilder mouths the words, It's alive, tells us a great deal. It tells us that the suspension of disbelief required for a horror movie is great indeed. And if you're unwilling or unable to try, then things will get pretty daft pretty quickly. The scene, for example, where Fritz in the original and Igor in the comedy remake get the jars with the creature's brain mixed up are almost identical. In the original, the effect is tragic and tawdry. In the spoof, ludicrously and brilliantly hilarious. I think it also tells us a lot about the affection in which the original universal horror movies are held among movie makers and writers. No one need ever die. I will stop this. No, you can't achieve death. We won't know unless we try. I warn you, what you are suggesting is not only illegal, it is immoral. Kenneth Branagh's 1990s remake, entitled Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and produced by Francis Ford Coppola, was made with the express intention of getting back to the original source material, Mary Shelley's novel. This is both a blessing and a curse. It means that things take a while, and the whole is sprawling. We are left to wait for moments of genuine bravura filmmaking, and they do come, and memorable performances, and faithful references to Mary Shelley's original source work. And all of those elements, I think, are worth waiting for. But it does mean that it's like watching a play by the same lightning that powers the creature into life. Inspirational flashes with unpredictable weights in between. Director Kenneth Branagh, who also stars as the blasphemous Doctor, is clearly making a big Hollywood horror movie. He's helped in this by the excellent Patrick Doyle and his score, by turns romantic, then calamitous. A very exciting musical soundtrack. Screenwriter Frank Darabont, however, bemoaned Branagh's operatic approach. Frankenstein wrote Darabont, is the best script I ever wrote and the worst movie I've ever seen. Therein lies the problem. It's a movie pulled in too many different directions at once, too many different parts, and when the story of Frankenstein's monster becomes something of a stitched-together Frankenstein's monster in its own right, it requires a lot of effort on behalf of the audience. Back to the suspension of disbelief again. It's a long haul. Robert De Niro plays the creature, and he studied patients recovering from strokes to play the scenes where the creature learns to speak. It is, as we'd expect from De Niro, exceptionally detailed and intense. But his approach does bring us back to Karloff. For all of Boris's theatricality, which is greatly at odds with De Niro's approach, both actors have started from the same place. A terrible sadness. De Niro does this with the aid of dialogue 
and a lot of screen time. Karloff remains mute and, in less than half the time, portrays a heartbreaking and unforgettable original Frankenstein's monster. The original, and for my money, the best. There's a London Mocks ghost tour every night of the week. And at Halloween, there are extra tours added. So visit www.walks.com for full details. Keep up with us on Twitter. We're at London Walks. We'll see you out there. If you are spared.